MSW Media. What can be done about Republican efforts to restrict and suppress voting? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps you understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode with special thanks to Andrew Donnelly, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Kimberly Summers, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. All one word. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So, Maddie, I have to say, um, you know, we have, I think, a topic today that's very important, but it lacks, you know, this immediacy that sometimes we've had podcasts about, right? You know, often our podcasts have been about, oh, my God, the president of the United States just did this, said this. We just learned, you know, he may be, uh, you know, he's under investigation for this or that. You know, the news cycle has gotten to a point now where we can actually think about policy issues and long-term trends and, and bigger things that are happening more on a, on a more macro level in our country. And I think that because this isn't happening in every state, for example, in Illinois, we have a, a fairly uh, strong uh, presence with Democrats having control of the, the legislature and our governor's a Democrat and the mayor of Chicago. So we're not experiencing this. So I don't think that sense of urgency is there. And you know, policy isn't something that people necessarily, uh, like you said, it's not exciting. It's not, it doesn't grab your attention the same way. And yet it is one of the most threatening things to our democracy that's happening right now. Yeah, I really think that this issue of voting and, for example, there's this this act that Congress has been trying to pass. You know, the House introduced it in the last session. I remember when Congressman Khanna talked to us about it a couple of years ago, the For the People Act, H.R. 1, that that establishes federal standards for voting, you know, to me, that act and whether or not it gets passed and whether or not um, those there's a federal regulation of these voting standards in terms of voter registration and, you know, early voting, vote by mail and, of course, campaign finance and redistricting. You know, if that gets passed or not, that could be the most important vote of a generation in the way that. I really think the Voting Rights Act, which for the for the first time in American history, made it possible for African-Americans to vote in in large numbers as a real practical matter, even if they technically could before. I think that the the effects of that vote could be the most important one of a generation. And or if Trump was still around, we would be focusing entirely on some shenanigans or tweets as opposed to focusing on, I think, this really important policy issue. And we started our conversation, uh, you and I, off uh, you know, the air, as you would say, talking about how different it is to not 
be under this constant state of emergency, almost being in an emotionally abusive relationship with our president of the United States. And so that we can turn our attention to these things uh, as we should. Um, because there are, I cannot believe there are over 250 bills across the country that are intended to roll back access to voting. And that's just staggering to me. Well, yeah, I, you know, it's ever since the election, and this I think was fueled in part by Trump's bogus claims about voter fraud, that, that what we're seeing all over the place is, uh, you know, these, these, these Republican-led states saying, okay, we want to curb early voting. We want to have fewer locations. We want to have fewer hours. We want to make it harder to register. We're going to purge the voter rolls. We're going to make, you know, make it, you know, make you have to present identification. All of these new laws, new restrictions, I think to me it's transparently an attempt to have fewer people vote. And I understand that they believe that that's their, in their electoral interest. But I have to say, you know, first of all, they actually won a lot of elections this last time. And it wasn't a Democratic sweep by any means. Uh, but separate and apart from that, you know, there's a broader principle here, which is do we want to have more people participate in our democracy or not? And I think a lot there were some Republicans who came forward and basically said, no, unless you're really informed or really motivated, we don't want you to participate. And I just think that's antithetical to what a democracy is supposed to be. Absolutely. And look, you know, I I really started going to Springfield back in 2015 when it was apparent that uh, Governor Rauner was making drastic changes that were going to affect people who were least likely to be able to fight to protect themselves, their families. And I was encouraging people, pay attention to the rest of the ballot. You know, people, they go out and vote for the governor, for the president. You know, we don't have these midterm elections. And that's where you really uh, are affected by what your local leaders are doing. And so, yeah, there are a lot of people who don't necessarily participate all the time. And I and I want to encourage people to be involved. And of course, your listeners are. Uh, so I'm, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm preaching to the crowd. But you know, we have those conversations, even if it's posting positive things about, you know, calling your legislator, making sure you know about your voting rights, and be aware when things like this are happening, not just in your community but across the country, because we're going to, you know, if these if these states, if these geo leaders are successful this will have ramifications for decades to come i agree 100 percent. that's why we're 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 focusing on this topic uh today because i think that you know this really is a bubble up sort of thing in other words the the people who draw these the draw the maps for example often are state legislators uh and uh you know sometimes governors and, and these are the races that people don't always pay attention to it's very sexy to you know, try to support the new presidential campaign. It's less exciting to people to focus on their state representative or state senator or something like that. But those those people often are determining what the districts look like that are going to elect our, our members of Congress. And let's face it, if there was, you know, a Kevin McCarthy, a Speaker of the House, we probably wouldn't have had a peaceful transition to power. We probably would have had the people who are attacking our capital, you know, they would have been cheering on efforts by the House to try to obstruct the transfer of power to President Biden. And I think, it, you know, it, it, there's no, there was no more clear sense in my mind of how elections mattered than the election of, of Nancy Pelosi as Speaker and then, of course, the election of Joe Biden as President of the United States. It's, it's why... I can focus right now. I'm I'm in the middle of moving and selling. I sold my place and and all these things I've got going on in my life. I know that the president of the United States right now is not trying to um, 
you know, do you know, start some international crisis. He's not going, you know, he's not trying to undermine our ability to, uh, you know, uh, get past this pandemic. He's trying to order new doses and encourage people to uh, to uh, follow medical advice and science. I mean, all of this is possible because of elections. And if we don't get these state legislators uh, and other, you know, and and make sure that these local leaders are elected that are going to, ha- you know, pass rules that are going to allow voting uh, to be unimpeded, uh, we potentially are going to have national consequences as well. Which is why we need a national solution. And that's, I, I know a lot of people are waiting to see if we can get this done. If not now, it's really a question of will we have this opportunity again in the near future? Yeah, I have to say it's very rare that you get the a presidency, the House, and the Senate aligned. The last time that happened, uh, you know, for Democrats was in 2008, and it only lasted for a couple of years. And so this is the time for Democrats to figure out something nationally because, you know, elections, as we've talked about before, are, are handled and they're, and they're administered at the, lo- at the local level, the state and local level. And so Congress does have the authority to regulate ho- voting. And so they can set standards. But otherwise, if you don't have that, you're going to have situations where a lot of these Republican states are going to make it extremely difficult for people to vote so that they can continue to keep their majorities with less than 50% of the population actually voting for them. Yep. Well, I think there's a good time to bring in our guest, Jonathan Diaz. He's, he's a legal counsel with, uh, with uh, the Campaign Legal Center, and what he does is he, vo- he, he focuses on increasing access to the right to vote, and he litigates voting rights cases in federal courts all across the United States. Uh, you know, he's challenged everything from the practice of denying a voting rights restoration to citizens with past felony convictions. Uh, he was involved in the uh, Georgia uh, litigation uh, regarding deficiencies in their electoral system that burdened uh, voters, particularly voters of color. And he's really been involved across the country in all sorts of uh, fights in court trying to advocate uh, against laws that restrict access to the vote. So now let's bring in Jonathan Diaz. Thank you for joining us, Jonathan. Really appreciate having you on the podcast. Yeah, glad to be on. So you have spent uh, a lot of time over the past years, you know, litigating voting rights cases in different states. This is unfortunately, I think, a a growing trend that we've seen of laws that are making it more difficult to vote. You know, has that you know, that trend seems to be picking up this year. We've been seeing more and more legislators, legislatures considering voting laws that uh, make voting more difficult or burden voters. Uh, what particularly what in particular have you seen in the in the, the year since we've had this recent election cycle? Yeah. So in in these recent months following the 2020 general election, we have definitely seen just an explosion of bills in legislatures across the country um, that seem, you know, just blatantly focused on making it harder for people to vote at almost every stage of the process. Um, Everything from making it harder to register to reducing early and in-person voting opportunities to making it harder to vote by mail. Um, And it all seems to be motivated by this this belief 
by particularly Republican legislators that making it harder to vote will improve their chances of getting elected. It, it seemed to me, too, when I was looking at all of these different laws, I was recently kind of reading a synopsis of all the proposed laws in all these different states. You know, the only thread that you could really link that links all these laws together is, as you point out, making it harder to vote. I mean, otherwise, you know, why would you want to have fewer voting locations, shorter uh, windows of time for people to vote, hard, making it harder for them to register, make, you know, all these they, these the only common thread through all these things is that it makes it harder to vote. So I'm curious, I imagine that there's very few legislators who are saying we want, uh, you know, we want less people to vote. Although I th- I've seen some quotes from some that actually say that. But uh, what is the stated reason? In other words, what do they what do they claim? What are they what are they what's their what are they moving their lips and saying is the reason for these uh, for these uh, restrictions? Yeah, well, I mean, like you said, you'd be surprised. There are there have been a handful of legislators who have just come out and said that you know we don't want everybody voting. And it's not about the quantity of votes. It's about the quality of votes, which is the same kind of rhetoric that we heard, you know, in the Jim Crow era, um, in the time of literacy tests and poll taxes. Um, but what what we're seeing, you know, in in states across the country, whether, you know, they were won by Joe Biden, whether they were won, won by Donald Trump, whether they were close or or blowouts, is these legislators saying that they need to make voting more difficult. They need to implement these policies because people have lost faith in our elections or voters, their constituents, you know, don't have confidence that the election was fair. And so they need to tighten up these restrictions to address those concerns. Um, But what you never hear them saying is that those concerns exist in large part because many of these same legislators, as well as national politicians, have been pushing conspiracy theories and you know allegations that our elections you know that there was some massive fraud scheme that made our elections you know insecure or illegitimate um which of course there's no evidence of that um but you know because people are now quote concerned about you know fraud in elections they have to crack down on it even though it's a phantom problem um and that's just not convincing when you look at the evidence in these states. And, you know, more than 60 lawsuits were filed in the wake of the 2020 election, uh, which were uniformly thrown out by Republican and Democratic appointed judges. Um, And, you know, they're they're pushing these restrictions in states like Florida and Texas and Iowa, which, you know, Donald Trump and Republican congressional candidates won. And so there's a, a disconnect between this argument that, you know, oh, these elections are, you know, horrible and riddled with fraud and illegitimate, but you won these elections. So it's, it really doesn't make, you know, this, these same legislators won their seats under the rules that they are now saying are horribly unfair, which doesn't make a ton of sense. Yeah. I don't really think it's supposed to make sense. It's just supposed to give them something to say that isn't the truth, which is that they want fewer people to vote. You know, it's interesting to me, you know, that essentially this is the what what all of Trump's uh, conspiracy theories about the election have come to. I mean, they, they've taken on a life of their own and now they're essentially being hijacked and used by by politicians who want uh, to cement their their power, want to make it so that they gain an electoral advantage. 
You know, I think it's interesting you were hearkening back to the Jim Crow era, and I know exactly what you're talking about when it comes to poll taxes and literary te- literacy tests, but I think it's just helpful for our, our to give everybody context here. W- will you talk to us a little bit about the history of voting restrictions, particularly in the Jim Crow era, but you know, how, how has that been uh, a way or a tool that's been used to disenfranchise certain populations? Sure. So, you know, restrictions on who can vote, um, particularly discriminatory restrictions on who can vote, are almost as old as the Republic. Um, I think most people know that, you know, at the founding, only, you know, white men and particularly white men who owned land um, were the ones who were really able to vote. And over time, the franchise was expanded to include first black men with the passage of the 15th Amendment and then women with the passage of the 19th Amendment. But at every turn, um, you know, state legislators, for reasons of, of prejudice or reasons of trying to secure partisan advantage or sometimes both, have made it challenging for certain groups to gain access to the ballot, particularly people of color. And so in the period between the passage of the 15th Amendment, which guarantees the right to vote, um, regardless of race or color, which came right after the Civil War, um, and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, you have a hundred year period where legislatures, particularly in the South, um, were passing restrictions on voter eligibility that on their face were designed to look neutral, but really were intended to make it harder for minorities and particularly black Americans to, to access the ballot. And so you would have a law like a literacy test or like a poll tax where like, if you just read it on its own on a piece of paper, it would, you know, somebody could say, well, that's not about race. That's just about, you know, literacy. When in reality, it was designed in a way um, to give local election officials discretion to block black people from registering and voting. Um, And so those are the same kinds of restrictions that we're seeing now. You know, they're not quite as blatant as, say, a poll tax or a literacy test because those are illegal under the Voting Rights Act. Um, but when you are, you know, canceling early voting on Sundays in Georgia, as some legislators are trying to do, which, you know, specifically targets the souls to the polls programs that black churches in Georgia have been putting on for decades to turn out the black vote, that's clearly, in my view, a discriminatory uh, voting law that is designed to deter African-American participation in our elections. Um, and, you know, there are similar bills under consideration in places like Arizona, um, you know, to eliminate the permanent early voting list um, and to make it more difficult for voters in rural communities, especially Native American voters and Latino voters, to, to access mail balloting. Um, and so these are these are not new tactics. This is not a new strategy. Um, it's consistent with a, you know, a centuries old playbook of making it harder for black and brown people to vote because in the view of the legislators who are passing these bills, they're not going to vote the way that the legislators want them to. It's interesting. You know, you mentioned, for example, a poll tax, just to put a fine point, finer point on it, you know, uh, putting a poll tax uh, obviously makes it uh, harder for people who are struggling to make ends meet to vote, and it makes it has no impact on people who are wealthy. And you know, it, it has this disparate impact. And on the margins, of course, it's going to reduce voting amongst people who are lower income, often people from particular minority groups. 
And the, of course, the the restriction you mentioned a moment ago, this uh, early Sunday voting is much more direct. I mean, that's in many ways more targeted towards a particular minority group. You know, I I think one thing that I find interesting uh, with all of this is that you know it took a major piece of legislation to really uh, to really kind of cut at and undermine the. Um, the Jim Crow voting restrictions, and that was the Voting Rights Act. I think that that piece of legislation was profoundly impactful in this in the in this country. One that I think sometimes people don't it doesn't get elevated to the to status it should. In uh, I'm curious, you know, we've obviously had some rollback on the Voting Rights Act, at least on certain provisions by the Supreme Court. I'm curious about what you think the impact has been. Uh, on of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, not only regarding the Voting Rights Act, but regarding gerrymandering and how that has made it, you know, uh, has presented challenges for people like yourself who are voting to increase voter access. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the Voting Rights Act of of 1965 and its you know subsequent amendments over over the years is, I, in my view, the single most transformative piece of legislation that this country has ever seen. Um, because and there's a line. Uh, from a Supreme Court opinion that every every voting rights lawyer knows because we all we quoted in every brief we've ever filed, is that the right to vote is you know it's the most important right that we have because it is preservative of all of our other rights. Um, without the right to vote, you know we as a, as a nation as a people don't have the power to you know change the re- to change our government to decide who represents us to make any progress or change on any other issue that we care about. Um, and so the Voting Rights Act is is huge and is what really, I think, for the first time in American history, transformed this country into a democracy, um, because before that, it wasn't really one because we were not all of our voices were not being you know, heard and represented at, at the federal government level. Um, and the Supreme Court in the past you know, decade plus um, has really undermined um, the protections of the Voting Rights Act um, and you know, voting protections generally in the Constitution in a way that I don't think a lot of people realize. Um, the, this wave of voter suppression bills that we're seeing in state houses across the country would not be possible but for the Supreme Court's decision in the Shelby County case in 2013. Um, so before that decision came down, um, certain states um, were subject to a system called preclearance, where essentially they had to submit any election law changes to the federal government for pre-approval before they could implement them. Um, and the federal government would only sign off on them if the changes were not discriminatory or not likely to you know, cause a reduction in voting opportunities for for voters of color. Um, And that was a huge, it had a hugely deterrent effect on these state legislatures. Um, It curbed some of their worst impulses. Um, And in 2013, in Shelby County versus Holder, uh, a 5-4 majority of the Supreme Court held that the formula for determining which states are subject to preclearance was unconstitutional, um, essentially gutting uh, the most effective provision of the Voting Rights Act um, and allowing states like Georgia and Texas and Arizona and Florida 
to, you know, kind of run rampant and to impose new restrictive policies to make it harder for black and brown people, especially to vote. Um, and so, you know, that is part of a broader pattern uh, that this, you know, that the Roberts Court has engaged in, uh, you know, really any time that they have a case uh, that affects the foundations of our democracy, they, you know, they take the anti-democratic path. Um, it's not just with Shelby County, it's also the Citizens United decision, which unleashed, you know, just a flood of money into our politics. Um, it's the Rucho and, Whit and Whitford decisions, which um, held for the first time in American history. In the Rucho decision, the Supreme Court said, yes, partisan gerrymandering is a constitutional violation, but there is nothing the federal courts can do about it. Um, and, you know, kind of washed their hands of involvement with partisan gerrymandering, even as they acknowledged that it was harming our democracy and, and the people's ability to have a representative government. Um, and, you know, just earlier this month, um, they heard oral argument in a case called Brnovich versus DNC, um, which has the potential to undermine another uh, important provision of the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, which allows the federal government and uh, civil rights groups and voters to sue over discriminatory voting practices uh, by the states. Um, so it's been a really, it has been a really aggressive uh, pattern behind the scenes that the Supreme Court has been engaged in of really limiting uh, the ability of the federal courts writ large to address discriminatory voting practices. Yeah, you know that I I I have to say I think that that's something that the average uh, listener is not really focused on, but it's had a profound impact. Yeah, Patty, I think you had uh, a question from our listeners. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these legislatures are finding creative ways to make voting harder. So, what justifications are they providing for these bills? For example, as you mentioned, eliminating Sunday voting or prohibiting the distribution of food and water. Yeah, I mean, there are not a ton of convincing justifications for any of these restrictions, really, um, aside from what I already mentioned, which is that they're saying, you know, oh, we have to restore confidence in, you know, our, in the elections because our voters have lost confidence in them. I don't see how making voting harder restores anyone's confidence in the election. Um, and, you know, if they were really concerned about election integrity, as they claim to be, I mean, they could start by stopping lying about election results. Uh, and stopping from spreading conspiracy theories about, you know, voter fraud. Um, but they're not inclined to do that. Um, and so, you know, the reasons that they give for any particular bill, like, you know, not giving food and water to people waiting in line in Georgia, um, you know, the justification they've given for that is that, well, we don't want people to be bribing voters, which is just, I mean, absurd. You can't, that's, there's no, there's no real response <laughs> yeah. to that other than, you know, what? <laughs> and at the same time, they're enacting other policies that are just going to make those lines longer. So it would be one thing if they said, you know, we don't want to have people giving food and water to voters. Um, so we're going to make sure that the line is short. So that's not a need. But no, they're also reducing early voting days and making it harder to vote by mail and limiting the number of polling places in, you know, on election day to make those lines longer. And then also make sure that if you're sitting in line for six hours and somebody says, hey, you know, have a slice of pizza so you don't pass out, then that's, you know, they, because they want you to go home instead of waiting uh, all day to vote, even if you're willing to, which you shouldn't have to in the first place. 
So the, the concern is you'll be bribed with a bottle of water and a slice of pepperoni. Yes. Okay. Right, because you know, <laughs> because showing up and waiting for six hours isn't proof enough that you already know that you want to vote. Uh, it's going to be the bottle of water that makes you think, you know what? Actually, sure, yeah, you can buy my vote with you know a, a bottle of Dasani. That's setting aside the the food and water piece. Um, you know, there really is not a compelling justification for you know any of any of the restrictions. You know, because like we've said, all they're doing is making voting harder. Um, and and you know, it's not going to make our elections more secure to have less days of early voting um, or less you know or giving county election officials less time to count ballots or you know not letting voters bring their mail ballots in person. Yeah, very hard to see a consistent um, a consistent uh, theme or, or justification rationale for these restrictions. You know, I think one thing that uh, underlies all of this is, of course, you know, and, and it's it said it's unstated here, but it's it's important to, I think, say it publicly or to, to bring it to the forefront is that we have local and state control and administration of our electoral process in the United States. That's why a particular state legislature and sometimes, of course, even we're talking subunits, things like counties, it can have a, a really important role in how a, an election is administered. And of course, you know, something like the Voting Rights Act, which you discussed earlier, had some important uh, regulation of voting. There's another act that's currently, uh, you know, being debated in the halls of Congress, the For the People Act, H.R. 1, that would do something similar, right? Regulate, you know, not only the administration of elections, but other things related to elections, gerrymandering and campaign finance and other things. I wonder if you could talk about, uh, to the extent you're able to, about H.R. 1 and, and what you think its impact is or importance is uh, in relation to this topic. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, H.R. 1, uh, which has been designated S1 in the Senate, um, so the For the People Act to, to encompass them both, um, would be a a similarly transformative piece of legislation to the Voting Rights Act um, because it would strengthen and reinforce the pillars of our democracy, not just access to voting, but also, you know, eliminating partisan gerrymandering in our redistricting system, um, establishing codes, stronger codes of ethics for public servants and government employees, um, you know, reducing the impact of, you know, dark money and, and corporate spending in our elections. Um, but the voting provisions are, you know, really, really critical. They would establish nationwide standards for ballot access um, so that your ability to cast your vote wouldn't depend on, you know, what state you live in or maybe what county you live in. Um, and the, the voting provisions of of HR1 are, you know, they are derived from, you know, processes that have already been in place in the states, uh, in some cases for many years, um, in red states and blue states. They are, it's a bipartisan set of election administration policies that have proven to work in, you know, states as, as red as Utah and, you know, as blue as Illinois um, and everybody in between. You know, um, they would mandate, you know, certain, you know, amounts of time for early voting that, you know, to set a floor 
to make sure that everybody has the same opportunities to vote in person. They would require, you know, that everybody, um, everybody be eligible to vote by mail if that's the way that they want to vote, that that makes the most sense for them. It would require the use of an of you know verifiable paper ballots so that results could be audited. Um, it would limit foreign interference in our elections. Um, it would increase transparency for political advertising um, so that you would know who is funding political ads that you see. Um, it would you know it would be just a, a massive overhaul of our of our federal elections um, to make sure that the kinds of restrictions that we are seeing proposed in state legislatures um, are just not possible. Um, and, the, and the reason that that is even you know, a thing is that the constitution gives Congress broad authority to regulate federal elections. Um, the elections clause of the constitution says that states have the primary responsibility for choosing the time, place, and manner of elections, but uh, Congress can alter or you know, set their own rules that supersede them at any time. Um, that's not the exact language of, of the election clause. But <laughs> basically, Congress has broad authority to, to set uh, election rules um, for federal elections. And that is actually something that even this conservative Supreme Court has recognized time and time again. Part of their justification in the Rucho decision saying that they can't do anything about partisan gerrymandering is that, well, that's, that's Congress's problem. And if, if they want to address that, they need to do it through legislation. The courts are not going to do it for them. Um, and so, um, so yeah, I mean, the HR1, the For the People Act, would um, address a lot of the ills um, that are plaguing our democracy. I know we had another question from our listeners, Patty, that sort of, I think, is a, a real good way of approaching a lot of this. Do, do you have that? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is something that, I, as we've talked about throughout this conversation, I, I think is kind of uh, background noise for a lot of folks. So what obstacles do we face in connecting with Americans to inform them about these threats to their voting rights? I think, you know, one of the things that gives me a lot of, a lot of hope in doing this work um, is knowing that you know, even in the relatively short amount of time that I've been doing this, seeing the level of awareness and engagement among the general public in you know voting and election administration issues, um, you grow over time. Um, I don't think that you know five years ago, uh, you know the average person on the street could have told you, you know whether you know wh who, what a secretary of state is, or you know whether they were able to vote by mail or vote early. Um, you know, I don't think that people could have given you, you know, in detail, a description of like the electoral college or, you know, the, the machinery of our democracy. Um, but I think that, you know, in the last few years, especially in the 2018 and 2020 elections, it has become, you know, those kinds of things have become part of the popular lexicon in a way that they hadn't been in the past. Um, and so that is a kind of momentum that I think that those of us who really care about these issues um, have to seize on and to say, you know, to the average person, like, okay, maybe, maybe your elections administration is not like your pet issue. Maybe that's not the thing that you care the most about. But whatever the thing that you care the most about is, whether it's healthcare or climate change or criminal justice reform or, you know, small business regulations or, or whatever, um, nothing can be done about any of those things if we don't fix the system 
that you know under that undergirds all of it first. Um, you know, dem our democracy and our system of voting and elections is the vehicle through which all other policy change um, is is going to have to occur. And so we need to make sure that that car is running before we can take it anywhere. Um, and so connecting elections and voting, um, like I said earlier, you know, it's preservative of every other right. No matter what you care about, you have to care about voting rights and elections reform uh, in order to, you know, be able to achieve whatever your goals might be. Yeah, I think that's an important point. People sometimes underrate or underestimate these laws, whether it's the Voting Rights Act, for the People Act, uh, or just the work that you know you guys have been doing at a state by state level and the importance of it, because it may not be as sexy to talk about, hey, making sure people can vote on a Sunday morning, but it's really important, right? It has an impact on who gets elected, as we saw, for example, in Georgia, those two senators who got elected obviously changed the course of our country uh, in many ways in terms of passing the stimulus bill and, and many other things. So, so Jonathan, I, I, you do, you know, you work for the Campaign Legal Center. I know you guys are, are involved in, in litigation in multiple states and you have a whole other array of things that you do. Can you, if people are interested in finding out about CLC and also just finding out about this topic in general, uh, learning more about, uh, about access to voting, where, where can they go to do that? Sure. Um, so we are always posting updates about our work um, on our website, which is campaignlegal.org. Um, and, uh, you know, on our Twitter feed as well, which is at campaign legal. Um, you know, we are a DC based uh, legal organization um, that works on democracy reform, you know, on a nonpartisan basis. Um, and we are only able to do that work because of our, you know, really incredible partners in all of the states that we work in. Um, so, you know, we, uh, we represent organizations like the League of Women Voters and Common Cause, the NAACP, um, you know, groups who are on the ground in places like Georgia and Arizona and Texas and Florida, um, who are, you know, showing up to legislative committee hearings and to county board of elections meetings um, and who are really elevating the problems uh, that they encounter when they're trying to register folks to vote to us so that we can bring them to court. Um, and so that's the kind of work that we do, um, whether it's, you know, litigation in the courtroom or legislative advocacy in, in the state house. Um, our, you know, our goal is to bring about a democracy that, you know, works for the people, um, that truly, that is transparent and accessible and that reflects, um, you know, the, the will and the diversity of of the constituency that it represents um and so when because when a government doesn't represent the people it's responsible for it can't be responsive to those people's needs absolutely great goal and i appreciate and admire the work that you guys do it's it's really important uh so thank you for sharing your knowledge and experience expertise with us today i know we'll uh, continue uh, focusing on this topic in the months ahead. Thank, uh, thank you, and uh, really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thank you for fighting the good fight, really. We're trying. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. On Topic.